0: Let's bow our heads together and open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the way that you have provided for us in everything in the spiritual life. That you have given us everything we need in order to grow and mature and in order to handle any and every problem we might face in the spiritual life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. We're going through the promises related to the spiritual life. It's part of our studying 3rd John. John mentions that he or praises Gaius because of his walk by means of the truth. Scripture teaches that we walk by faith and not by sight, that it is the Word of God that's the object of faith. It is not something that, uh, faith is not some sort of inner mystical uh, sort of leap of faith, but it is something that is focused on an object, the Word of God. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. So we're taking the time to go through various promises to show how the faith rest drill works in practice. We have seen that, uh, excuse me a minute, let me... Open up the other slide presentation here. There we go. We have seen that there are three stages to the faith rest drill. The first is to claim a promise. And I've been challenging people in the congregation to memorize promises. Every now and then you get resistance, but I want to point out another illustration of problem solving through memorizing scripture, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. When He is on the cross, and he quotes uh, and cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is not simply quoting, and he quotes from several psalms when he's on the cross, he is not simply citing that one statement. Uh, the Jews did not have a Old Testament or Hebrew Bible at that time that was divided into chapter and verse. You identified the psalms through the introductory verses. And so when the writers of Scripture indicate that Jesus cried out, and they have a psalm there, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus actually quoted the entire psalm while he was there on the cross. He was utilizing Scripture he had memorized in his soul in order to handle the pressures of the cross. And that is a model for us. Jesus Christ didn't memorize those Scriptures in his deity He memorized those scriptures in his humanity. He went through that same process. So I don't like hearing excuses for not memorizing scripture because, well, I'm too busy. It's too much trouble. should have done that when I was younger. I can't concentrate like I could when I was young. There's all kinds of excuses. And all you're doing is saying, I don't want to put the word of God into my soul. It's just too much trouble. The uh, Jews... Had an, it's really an extreme reverence for the Word of God, and I always remember the story that Arnold Fruchtenbaum tells about his uh, ancestors. He came from a family that was uh, involved in, uh, some of his ancestors founded the Hasidic order of uh, Orthodox Jews. But part of what his, some of his uncles and grandfathers did was involved in transmitting the text and in order to be a part of this scribal group that transmitted and copied the text of scripture they had to memorize the old testament they didn't just memorize it they had to have an impeccable memory they had to memorize it so clearly that uh, by the age of 13 they had the entire pentateuch memorized by the age of 18 they had the entire old testament memorized so that they could take a final exam they would take a scripture they would drive a nail through the scripture and say okay What letter does the nail intersect on page 52? And they would have to know exactly what letter, in what word, in what verse that nail intersected. Every page would look the same. Every, they would, uh, in the scribal tradition, the first letter of every page was the same, the last letter, that's, they didn't have Xerox machines, so that's how they would check their work. They knew what the center letter on every page would would be. So if unbelievers have a reverence for memorizing scripture like that, why is it that as believers in the church age that we treat the Bible so lightly that we try to find excuses for not memorizing scripture? I've even heard some believers say it's legalism and that just shows a tremendous desire to show disrespect for the word of God. You can make anything legalistic. But if you don't have promises in your soul, then you will not have any ammunition to fire when you uh, have to use the faith rest drill. So step one is claiming promises. Step two is thinking through the doctrinal rationales that are embedded in that promise. And that's not always easy to do. That calls for concentration and meditation. You have to sit down with sometimes a paper and pen in your hand and write down your thoughts and just to think about everything that's encapsulated in that one verse. And then step three comes when what's in that verse becomes real in our soul, where we believe it um, more so than anything we see, taste, touch, or feel. When the Word of God becomes more real to us than our experience, it becomes more real to us than our circumstances, and it becomes more real to us than our feelings. Now, we've looked at several promises, but in the last two or three lessons, we have gone through a study of promises related to fear, worry, and anxiety. We started with Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, strengthen you, yea, I will help you. Yea, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. We did a study of fear, and we saw that embedded within this promise is the rationale that God is not just some abstract deity, but he is our God. There is a personal relationship there, and because God is speaking to the Jews at a time of crisis in their history, the idea that he is upholding them by his righteousness goes back to his integrity and the promise that he made them in the Mosaic Covenant that he would take them out of the land in terms of discipline and that took place in 586 B.C. but also that he would restore them to the land and bring them back so there is a promise there to trust God despite the circumstances that would bring about fear and we saw that the fear at that time was related to the approaching invasion by the Persians to the uh, Jews that were in the captivity in Babylon we went from that verse to psalm fifty five twenty two casting cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you, he shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Again, we see a connection with righteousness and integrity and here of course the righteous refers to believers that the term cast is from the Hebrew Shalak, which means to throw, cast, hurl or fling something on the Lord and burden. And the idea of the providence of God. This is the word Yahav, meaning a lot or a gift. And it is translated in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation the Jews had of the Old Testament, with the Greek noun merimna, merimna, which refers to a worry or a care. The word Yahav, a lot, suggests that these Adversities we face in life, the problems that come our way, don't happen by chance. They're under the providential direction of God. He specifically designs the tests that come our way because he knows just exactly what we need in order to test our faith so that we can learn to trust him and grow and advance in the spiritual life. Uh, Psalm 55.22 is the background for understanding 1 Peter 5.7, Peter uh, restructures the verse a little bit, and he says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And the verb that is used there in the Greek casting uh, is epiripto, which is the same Greek word used to translate uh, shalak in the Hebrew of Psalm 55.22. So we see that the verses overlap. The rationale in both verses has to do with the character of God. Again, his care for us, his love for us. This takes us to his uh, His integrity because he is righteous and that righteousness was satisfied at the cross. He has a, a personal love for each and every believer because we possess uh, the righteousness of Christ. So we are to cast our care upon him. And we looked at the context last time and studied the... Uh, rationale that's embedded in First Peter chapter 5. This time we're going to move to another area looking at Philippians 4.6 and and 4 6 and 7 and the promise that's there. In these previous verses that we have looked at, Isaiah 40 31, Isaiah 41 10, Psalm 55, 22, and 1 Peter 5, 7, the rationale that under undergirded each of those promises was a rationale related to the essence of God. We could almost say that every promise in the scripture is, uh, based on the, on the character of God and the essence of God, but there are other rationales in the, in these verses, and in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we will see in the context that there are, that there is another rationale. There are two rationales in these verses. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard or defend your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, when we look at these two verses, we have to realize that grabbing the rationale in these verses is a little more difficult and a little less obvious ...than the rationale that supports the other verses. It's not so obvious. It's not so clear. So we have to stop and look at it in a little detail. The two rationales that are embedded here, first of all, are the essence of God. It's the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. So this relates to the incomprehensibility of God. That is something that undergirds this promise. The other, the other rationale that undergirds this promise is the plan of God, and that is not so easily seen, especially if you're just familiar with your English text. If you go back to verse four, you'll notice uh, that that um, Paul says the Lord is near, and the word that is used there in the Greek for near is the word ingus which is the word that is used in reference to the uh, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the imminency of his return. And so what is behind this from the context is Paul is reminding them the Lord's coming is near. There, there is a reason for this. Don't put off living the Christian life. Uh, the Lord may come back at any moment. We need to be trusting in Him and advancing in our spiritual life, not getting caught up in worry and anxiety over the circumstances of life, but realizing that the Lord is coming back and that we need to press on to spiritual maturity and not get distracted by the cares, the anxieties, the worries, the day-to-day details of life. So there are actually two ideas that are embedded, two rationales that are embedded in these verses. The problem that Paul is addressing and that all of these verses address, these promises address, is fear. Fear is the core emotional sin that goes hand in hand with the mental attitude sin of worry. We saw that in our study in Genesis chapter 3, that when Adam and Eve had disobeyed God and God walked in the garden, they were afraid and they ran and hid. So the first emotional sin that shows up after their sin of arrogance is the sin of fear. Fear breeds worry, anxiety, and all other types of emotional sins. It is related to, always related to arrogance. When you are afraid, You are also operating on arrogance. So let's just briefly review about eight points on the doctrine of arrogance. First point, arrogance is defined as an orientation of the mind or thought that puts man or self as the ultimate reference point in the universe. In arrogance, you are saying you are what matters. You are the ultimate determiner of truth, of right and wrong. That man determines what he should do and what he can't do. That there is no one that you're answerable to. So arrogance is defined as an orientation of the mind or an orientation of thought that puts man or self as the ultimate reference point in the universe. That man is the source, or that you are the source... Of meaning, value, security, and success, and the ultimate determiner of values. That should have an S on the end. The ultimate determiner of values. In arrogance, point number two, arrogance always replaces the creator with the creature. Arrogance always replaces the creator with the creature. See, in arrogance, you matter, not God. You are the ultimate determiner of right and wrong, not God. You are the determiner of what should happen in your life and what shouldn't happen in your life. You are the one who tries to control the details of life rather than the God, the creator. So arrogance always replaces the creator with the creature. Third point, arrogance thinks that man has a has a way that is better than God's way. The proverb says that... uh there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Twice that verse is included in the Proverbs for emphasis. In arrogance, man thinks that his way is better than God's way. He somehow knows more. Now think about that. Here you, the finite creature with limited knowledge and limited experience, think that you know more than omniscient God who planned everything and charted out human history, and knows you better than you know yourself. So in arrogance, we think that our way is better than God's way. Point number four, arrogance is the mental attitude that corresponds to the sin nature. Arrogance is the mental attitude that corresponds to sin nature control. Whenever you are in sin nature control, you're arrogant. Whenever you're arrogant, you're under sin nature control. They go hand in hand. Arrogance is the orientation of the sin nature. So The sin nature is always oriented to independence from God, autonomy with God, and living apart from God. So arrogance is the mental attitude that corresponds to sin nature control. This leads to point number five. Arrogance is the orientation of every person from birth, every unbeliever and every believer that's out of fellowship. So arrogance is the orientation of of everyone at birth. Why? Because at birth you have sin nature, you're under sin nature control. There's no other option. There is no other option. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, from the instant of birth... When that baby inhales and receives soul life, from that instant that soul is under the domination of the sin nature and there's no other option but to either function in terms of your area of weakness and produce personal sin or area of strength and produce human good. There's nothing else. The, uh, the, everybody is operating on the sin nature from birth until salvation. There's no other option. It's therefore, every unbeliever is certainly under the control of the sin nature, and every unbeliever, no matter how much pseudo-humility there may be, no matter how nice and wonderful and sweet they are, that's all a function of their arrogance. Every human being is arrogant and operating on arrogance from day one. When you become a believer, that arrogance has stopped because at salvation you are humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. You are recognizing that I can't save myself. God must save me. And at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, that is the first act of genuine humility in a person's life. But, of course, as soon as you sin, after you're saved, you're back in arrogance under sin nature control again until you confess your sin and get back in fellowship and operate On the Holy Spirit. So arrogance is the orientation of every person from birth. Arrogance is the orientation of every unbeliever. And arrogance is the orientation of every believer that's out of fellowship. Because when you're out of fellowship, you're under sin nature control. This leads to point number six. Arrogance, then, is the orientation of all human viewpoint. All human viewpoint is based on arrogance because it excludes... God, from the picture. There is no orientation to divine thought. Therefore, all human viewpoint, no matter how true it may be, it's going to leave something out. I was thinking yesterday as I was driving down the road, looking at the trees and beautiful shapes in the trees and the colors, and notice a few little hints of of autumn here and there, that the creation is beautifully and perfectly designed that God has designed leaves and trees and colors and all these fantastic shapes and we go back to Genesis and we realize that embedded in Genesis is the starting point for a doctrine of beauty God created a beautiful creation, everything harmonizes, all the colors in nature harmonize, they don't clash This is our starting point for understanding beauty so that when you as a believer operating on divine viewpoint look at something beautiful, you don't really see the same thing that the unbeliever looks at because what he's looking at is a collection of shapes and sizes and colors that just happens to be that way, and it's a product of chance, and what you're looking at as a believer is something that was magnificently designed to be that way by God and that it has perfect harmony so no matter what else you may agree on and there may be agreement on 9999 points but it's that one point of difference that the unbeliever in or the believer in human viewpoint sees it as a product of chance and the believer sees it as a product that was intricately designed by a personal God that that changes everything. So there's two ways of looking at at everything. And human viewpoint is based on arrogance ultimately. Uh, point number seven: arrogance was the sin of Lucifer, as expressed in the five I wills in Isaiah 14:13 and 14, where we have a description of Lucifer's fall that he would ascend ultimately the fifth I will. I will be like the Most High. So the best statement, most simple expression of arrogance is I will rather than God wills. Point number eight. Point number eight. Arrogance is the idea that the creature knows more than the Creator and can sit in judgment on the Creator in His revelation. This is foundational to thought. Arrogance is the idea that the creature knows more than the creator and can sit in judgment on the creator and his revelation. Now let's go back and look at the concept of fear. Fear, as we have seen, is the core emotional sin that always accompanies arrogance. Therefore, fear is the orientation of the fallen creature. If you are arrogant, you are also fearful. Now, you may try to cover up that fear. You may go through a life of learning all kinds of psychological techniques in order to disguise the fear or deny the fear or act as if that fear isn't there. But based on Genesis chapter 3, the basic orientation of the fallen creature is fear because he knows inherently at the core of his soul that he is a dependent creature Cast adrift in the Creator's domain, you see, Adam is created and he's placed in the domain of the Creator. And before the fall, everything is properly harmonized, and he is in right relationship and perfect rapport with God, with, with God the Father, with His Creator, who is in control of every detail on the planet. But as soon as Adam steps out in independence, he's out of bounds. And chaos enters into creation, and there's no control now. There is chaos in nature. There's chaos in his own soul. There's chaos in his own thought. There's chaos in his relationship with God. So because he is cast adrift in the Creator's domain, and he is totally insecure, fear then becomes the basic orientation for every human being. And in arrogance, what we try to do is control our circumstances, control the events, the people, the things around us in order to suppress that fear. And that fear is a recognition of our own finiteness, our own dependency, and our own inability to make life work. Fear also is the conversion of the outside pressure of adversity into stress in the soul. So that we, whenever we're afraid, what we're doing is we're converting outside pressure of adversity, whatever its source may be, into stress in the soul. So let me give you five points of what happens when fear takes over. First of all, when fear takes over, it shuts down thinking. Emotion reigns rather than objective thought. As a result of that, stress, we have converted the outside pressure of adversity into stress in the soul. When fear takes over, it shuts down thinking. We're operating on sin nature control, stress in the soul. Second point, stress makes you forgetful and impairs memory. The more intense the stress, the more it can cause a breakdown in your cognition, in your concentration, And you can become forgetful and begin to impair memory. Third, as stress increases, it will impair your ability to learn. When you're operating on fear, you can't learn. You're dominated by emotion. shuts down your thought processes. Fourth, stress will affect your perception of reality you will begin to interpret the events that are going on around you in terms of insecurity and in terms of inability and in terms of fear. So stress breaks down your memory, then it affects your ability to learn, and then it begins to distort our perception of reality so we can't be objective anymore. And then finally, the long-term effect of stress is that your cognitive ability may be permanently Impaired. If you continue to live over a period of 10, 20, or 30 years and you're not operating on the faith rest drill as a believer, that can have long term consequences on your cognitive ability. And that happens with, uh, many different people. So what we have in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is a promise that we can have peace Instead of worry. And the idea of peace here is the idea of tranquility in the storm. We can have, uh, be content despite the circumstances. It is not the idea that there are no external circumstances of adversity. It is the idea that even in the midst of that, a crisis, even in the midst of the chaos that may be swirling around us, we can be relaxed, we can have a mental attitude of contentment and knowing that God is in control and relaxing in God's control. So in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, the promise is that we can have peace Instead of worry, there is a contrast. It is either or. You're either going to have peace or you're going to have anxiety, one or the other. Now, as I've stated in the past as we've gone through this, there's always embedded in these promises the idea that there's a human viewpoint contrast. There's a human viewpoint solution as opposed to a divine viewpoint solution. And the human viewpoint solution is that we can achieve Peace through control. That's what we think. We get worried, concerned. There's some threat out there that is challenging some, some detail of life. And see, worry is always related to some detail of life. What are the details of life? Well, we look at family, friends, uh, social life, uh, finances are a major detail of life, finances, career, uh, sex for some people, uh, friends, family, sex, uh, money, material things. Just about any activity of life fits into one of the categories of the details of life. And as soon as one of these are threatened, as soon as it seems like our career is threatened or we're going to lose lose money or our financial security in terms of long-range Finances, for example, if you're retired and all of a sudden this kind of situation we have now, where there's low low interest rates and your uh, sec- your retirement security is threatened, or many different other things. As soon as these are threatened, then what happens is we begin to be fearful and anxious. And That is related to the fact that there are a thousand different things out there that can challenge the security of any detail in our life. And we think that somehow if we can just control this or control that, then we will have security and stability. In our culture, this idea of attempting to control life is manifested many different ways. You have all kinds of different psychological techniques that promise happiness and stability in life, That somehow if you just master this or that other technique or get involved with this school of thought or that school of thought, then you can handle life. Furthermore, there's all kinds of religious ideas, religious escapism, which is tantamount to denial. And I'm thinking specifically about some of the mind control techniques such as transcendental meditation in Hinduism, uh, mind science cults such as Christian science, and uh, many other uh, others of these kinds of things are very popular today uh teaching people that you have the ability to control the details of life and your response on your own you don't need to depend upon god and the faith rest technique is not to be confused with mind control it's not to be confused with uh psychological techniques Or religious escapism. It is not an empty faith. That's what a religious escapism is. I believe. I just sort of this empty trust that somehow everything's going to work out, and that is really a distortion of the promise in Romans eight twenty eight, that all things God causes all things to work together for good according to His plan, and that good is defined in context as even a long range working out of God's plan. So the good may never be known to us, and we may not see it in this life. It's not this just sort of absentee, well, everything's going to work out. That is not what Romans 8.28 teaches. The human viewpoint contrast is that man, the creature on his own, can achieve some sort of peace and tranquility and stability apart from absolute and complete dependence upon God. The human viewpoint contrast is based on several lies. The first lie is that the creature can control the events in life to such a degree that he can find peace and stability. Now, you know right away that's irrational if you think about it. The funny thing is is that the unbeliever is always accusing you, the Christian, of of the Of being the one who's irrational, but it's the unbeliever who's irrational, thinking that somehow they can find peace and stability in life and control all the details uh, therein. It assumes that somehow we can exercise omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence that we know enough, and we have enough power to be able to control that now, when you bring that out into the light of examination, you know that that is an absolutely Ridiculous and irrational assumption. And yet the sin nature operates on that in your soul and my soul almost on a daily basis. We think that somehow we can make it work apart from God. The second human viewpoint lie is that trusting God is defined as an irrational leap of faith. Trusting God is def- defined by the unbeliever and human viewpoint thought as an irrational leap of faith. Now, there's two words there we need to pay attention to. The first is the word irrational. The second is the phrase leap of faith. Faith is not a leap. Neither is faith, biblical faith, irrational. First of all, what happens in human viewpoint is, is that faith is defined up front as something that is non-rational. There is a juxtaposition of faith and reason. You know, it's either a matter of faith or it's a matter of reason. How many times have you run across that, that faith is juxtaposed to reason? Therefore, faith by definition becomes irrational. But the Bible never views faith in God as irrational. It never juxtaposes faith and reason. Let's take that apart and see what that means. First of all, faith itself is non-meritorious. Faith is non-meritorious. When you have faith, that faith, which is an act, of belief, that faith has no merit or value in and of itself. It is the object of faith that has the value. It is what you believe that has the value. So faith itself, by definition, is a non-meritorious act, and the merit is always in the object of of faith, the object of faith is um, is itself where the merit lies. now, the object of faith, this object you may believe something that is irrational. You may believe something irrational, for example, you may believe that you can actually control your life so that you can have peace and stability without depending upon God. That would be an irrational. Belief, But the act of faith itself is not in and of itself irrational. Second, we've seen that the method by which faith operates may be irrational. So you may have a rational method with an irrational object. You can have an irrational method with an irrational object. And it's only when it's biblical that you can have a rational method with a rational object. I mean, well, you, you can have a rational method and a rational object in, in empiricism or rationalism, but it's only biblically that you can have a true rational method with a true rational object. Let's go back and look at our chart. One day you're going to dream about this chart in your sleep because it's core to understanding how how we think. It's the basis for knowledge. We've looked at this many times. There are four ways in which we know anything. There's the autonomous systems of perception. That is human viewpoint. Human viewpoint, autonomous systems of perception are what? Arrogance. Autonomy. That's the key word. Autonomy means arrogance. It means self-law that man thinks that on the basis of these three systems alone, that's a key word, these three systems alone, he can arrive at truth. We break it down in the chart to three columns, the system, the starting point, and method. In rationalism, the starting point is the innate ideas and its faith in human ability. Notice it's not reason versus faith, but at the very core of rationalism, when you push it all the way back... There is a faith in human ability, that man's reason is capable, man's unaided reason is capable of arriving at ultimate truth and solutions to problems. There is a faith assumption at the very core of reason. Don't ever let anybody who is uh, an unbeliever, who's into, uh, who's a scientist, and say, "Well, I only believe that which is reasonable, rational, or that are that I can demonstrate in the laboratory." Well, just keep pushing them. How do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know that? Ultimately, they believe that man's unaided reason can arrive at truth alone. And that has always been seen to be a bankrupt idea. The method for getting there is independent use of logic and reason. So in rationalism, you have rigorous logic and reason. That's what I was talking about over here. You can have a rational method... And you can have a rational object, but it's not true because it's an independence from God. Second system, it's empiricism. The, in empiricism, you're looking at what you can see, taste, touch, feel, hear, what you can measure in the, in the laboratory, repeat in the laboratory. The starting point is sense perceptions, external experience. It's the basis for scientific methodology, but at the very core is faith in human ability to what? to properly interpret the sensory data. But what if I'm colorblind? How am I going to know the difference? You know, let's say you're colorblind. What color is Coca-Cola? Coca-Cola's original uncolored state is green. They have to add artificial coloring to make it the color you like. Well, what if you're colorblind? Then it doesn't matter. So when you're looking at an object and you're trying to evaluate something, how do you know the difference between dirty water and 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 uh, dirty, uh, slimy water, and and Coke if it looks green. Okay, you got to use color to evaluate things. So all I'm saying is that ultimately there's faith in the human ability to properly interpret the sense data. And that comes into your, comes into your eye and goes through your nerve system into the brain. And um, that data is almost instantly interpreted. You're not even aware of the fact that you're interpreting it. Once again, the method that's used in empiricism is logic and reason, but it's independent of God. It's autonomous, therefore it's all based in arrogance. Mysticism is just the reverse. It rejects reason. And historically, as I've said again and again, you always go through these cycles where you have an emphasis in rationalism and then empiricism and then they're bankrupt and then you leap. This is what a leap of faith is. The Bible doesn't talk about faith as a leap of faith. Historically, where the idea of leap of faith came from was was a Danish philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard who after the the developments in the history of ideas in the early nineteenth century in Kantian philosophy, uh they, they pretty much disproved that reason and empiricism could could bring about any real ultimate knowledge of or knowledge of ultimate truth. So, well, we know there has to be meaning because we can't live unless there's meaning, so let's just despite the fact that there's no evidence for God, let's just leap out there and believe there's a God. See, that's what a leap of faith is. leap of faith is irrational. It's in spite of the evidences. It's in contrast to the evidences as demonstrated through rationalism and empiricism. So mysticism puts its emphasis on uh, inner private experiences. I just know it's true because, well, I just know it. So it's based on an independent, non-logical, non-rational, and non-verifiable Methodology, But rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism are all part of human viewpoint categories of thought, that man on his own can somehow arrive at absolute knowledge. So the first point, let's go back to what I'm defining, is faith. And I'm pointing out that, that faith is not necessarily, is not irrational. See, rationalism is based on faith, empiricism is based on faith, and mysticism is based on faith. So you can't juxtapose faith and reason. Secondly, faith is not a leap. It's not a leap in the dark. Faith, biblically, is, is a kind of knowledge. You have knowledge that you derive from empiricism, but you also have knowledge that you get from revelation. God speaks to us. God has given us information. And so that is a source of knowledge, and we believe that. What makes the difference is the object of faith, not the kind of faith. See, faith in irrationalism and faith in God are the same thing. What differs is their object. So under divine viewpoint, there is a dependent use of logic and reason. Dependent relates to uh, humility, the creature putting himself under the authority of the creator. So faith, then, in the revelation of God is neither irrational nor is it a leap. In fact, Augustine, one of his better statements, made the statement that I believe in order that I may understand. That's the biblical position. I believe in order that I may understand. When Adam failed to believe God about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he no longer understood he tried to figure it out on his own, on empiricism, and look at what that did. Now, the reason I've taken this sidetrack is because many people think that faith is irrational. And they move to the next level, that when something is incomprehensible, that it is irrational. But incomprehensible only means that we don't fully understand it. It does not mean that something is irrational. We can understand the proposition that God loves us. It's a rational proposition. God loves you. You can understand that that God is all-powerful. That's a rational statement. But you can't understand everything that that entails. We do not understand the, all the dimensions to God's love. That is beyond us. But we can understand, in part, that God is love. We can understand, in part, that God is all-powerful but we cannot understand everything that is entailed in that. So when we have a peace that surpasses all comprehension, it's not talking about an irrational peace. It's talking about a rational, comprehensible peace to some degree. We can comprehend the method, we can comprehend what scripture says about it, but we can't comprehend the totality of it because it comes from an incomprehensible God. And this is the divine viewpoint promise of Philippians uh, 4, 6, and 7, that we can have peace and stability no matter what the consequences. That seems to run counter to what autonomous reason tells us. But when we submit our reason to the authority of Scripture, then we know that because God is omnipotent and He controls all the details, that God is in control of our life, and therefore we can relax in His control. So we, when we are dependent upon God, then we can relax and let God handle the situation. The phrase, That this is the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension is actually a participial phrase which focuses on the noun nous, which is the word for thinking or the mind. It is a peace that goes beyond, it surpasses huper echo, to go beyond or to rise above, goes beyond thought, goes beyond what is natural to human thought, the nous. And this is based on the character of God as is incomprehensible, Isaiah 55,8 and nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This then is shows that embedded in the promise, We have the essence of God. God is the one who is omnipotent and controls the circumstances. So rather than worrying and trying to figure it all out ourselves or control everything, we let God control it. The second rationale is the plan of God rationale. The plan of God, the term the plan of God, can refer to two two distinct plans. The first is the plan of God for human history. God has a plan for history, which he is working out. He is going to bring the church age to conclusion with the rapture of the church. Following the rapture of the church, there's going to be a seven-year period for Israel called the Great Tribulation. Tribulation is going to end with the second coming of Christ. During the tribulation, there will be the uh, judgment seat of Christ in the heavenlies for church age believers. That's the plan of God in relationship to human history. The second plan of God that we talk about is the plan of God or the blueprint for the spiritual life of every individual believer. When Paul uses the phrase, the Lord is near, he is bringing to mind the plan of God, that the Lord is near. He's talking about the Lord's coming. In Philippians 4, 5, let your gentleness be known to all men the Lord is at hand, Ingus, the Lord is near. His coming is near. So by reminding us that the Lord's coming is near or imminent, that is a reminder of two things. Number one, that God has a plan and a purpose for human history, and therefore you can relax. And number two, that plan and purpose in human history includes a plan for your life, and there will be accountability. John warned in uh, 1 John 2:18, 2, that or 2.27 that there would be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Do not be ashamed at his coming. So Paul is reminding the readers that the Lord's coming is near. Therefore, make sure that you are advancing in your spiritual life and not falling by the wayside and being defeated by worry, fear, and anxiety. So in verse 5 he says, "Be Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. Now, if you look back at verse 3, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. That is our first mention of joy. What I want to do here is just have you look at the surrounding context. As we look at that promise in Philippians 4, we can't just jerk it out of context. In verse 3 he says, Uh, Rejoice, or excuse me, in um, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Twice he mentions rejoice. Then look down at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. So in verses 4 through 9, Paul is giving the principle of rejoicing, which is a mental attitude state. And then in verse 10 and following, he gives an illustration from his own personal life. So the promise of verses 6 and 7, to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will defend your hearts and minds that promise is embedded within a discussion of mental attitude dynamics for the Christian from verses 4 down through verse 18. Rejoice is mentioned in verse 4, it's picked up Again, in verse 10, anxiety is mentioned, the principle of the promise in verses 6 and 7. And when we get down to verse 11 and 12, it's applied to the anxiety that could come as a result of financial catastrophe. Paul says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And he's talking specifically in regard to financial status. He says in verse 12, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. In other words, I know how to be poor, and I know how to be well-off. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, that's a context, and then this brings another key promise into the, into view. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, a lot of people memorize that scripture by just jerking it out of context. The all things here... It doesn't mean anything you can think of. Uh, you can't go out and write a, a, a symphony that would compete with a symphony written by Beethoven or Mozart. You can't say, well, the Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so why can't I do that? You can't go out and, and uh, invent the Internet or something comparable. That's not what this promise is talking about. Verse 13 is talking about, I can be in any and every situation and strengthened through Christ and not cave in to worry and anxiety. Verse 13 is related in Paul's experience to the promise back in verses 6 and 7 of not being anxious, not caving into worry in different situations because of the use of prayer and gratitude, thanksgiving, which is related to grace orientation. This also ties in the idea of humility. Grace orientation always brings in humility. This is reinforced in verse 5, the, let your gentleness be known to all men. And the word for gentleness there is the Greek word epiekes, and epiekes has to do with a uh, mental attitude of kindness, a mental attitude of, of, of humility. So humility is mentioned in verse 5, Humility is related to gratitude in verse 6. So, again, we have the mental attitude emphasized. Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good rep- good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate or think on these things. This is focusing on the content of thought as opposed to focusing on the things you can't control, the things that threaten your security, the things that cause you to worry, the things that cause you to be anxious. Verse 8 is a focus on doctrine, focus on objective truth. So the promises of verses 6 and 7 fit in a context of verses 4 through 9, which laid, lays down the objective principles of thought, and then verses 10 through 18, or actually 10 through 20, which gives an illustration from Paul's experience. And all of this concludes in one of my favorite promises, verse 19. My God shall supply all your need according to, that is, according to a standard of his riches in glory, In Christ Jesus. This means you can never cause God to go bankrupt. He has an infinite supply to provide whatever our need is. So that there is nothing that should cause us to cave in. To worry. To anxiety. To fear. To all the other things that plague us in life when things don't go well. We are instead to recognize that worry, fear, anxiety are sins. And they always show up when we're arrogant, being self-reliant, and when there's sin nature control. So the solution is confession of sin, and then focusing on the objective truths of God's Word, going to the Lord in prayer, in gratitude for the situation, we're to be thankful in all things and for all things, and then to claim these promises, thinking through the rationales, both the character of God and the plan of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the promises of Scripture, promises that uh, teach us how we are to live, that reveal to us everything that you have provided uh, for us, and that we can rely upon these promises because they are grounded in your character, grounded in your faithfulness, and grounded in your veracity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine where you will spend eternity. If you put your faith alone in Christ alone, then you will have eternal life. It's not a matter of what you've done or what you haven't done. It's not a matter of morality or immorality. It's not a matter of religious activity or non-religious activity. It's a matter of what Christ did on the cross. If you trust in him alone for your salvation, you will have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would just challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.